You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Millennium Discourses with Sajjad Ayyub and Sheikh Ibrahim Skatena. We're going to be discussing gratitude and cracking the code. Question is, Allah made us and created us because he loves to be known. Some would say this doesn't befit Allah as it suggests neediness. What would you say to this? The, suggesting that that statement um, points to neediness in Allah is an, it's an expression of, of um, a, a very narrow view of the issue of intent. You know, if you say, I'm doing this because of that, there's obviously a framing of intent. Hmm. You know? And we, uh, we are so used, we're very used to thinking that intent is always, the only way to think of intent is that I'm doing things to get things. Um, I'm, that my, my intent is an emptiness that seeks to be filled. I have a lack. I need to do something to fill the lack. And that is because we fundamentally are convinced that all intent is about getting. It doesn't occur to us that there's the two variables in how we structure intent. There's, there's, there's an experience, uh, a lack, and an action. You know, and we think that the action can only be dependent on an emptiness, on a lack. But let's say, for instance, something stupendously good happens to you and you are overjoyed. And in your state of extreme joy, you are dancing down the road, a stranger walks past you, and you just hand over a hundred pounds to this person. No, um, no uh, uh, trade. You're not doing this to develop any experience of obligation. You're just doing it because there's just so much of it. It's just, it's overflowing. Um, that's not an expression of your neediness. That's an expression of your fullness. It's entirely possible that you act not on the basis of an emptiness, but that you act on the basis of a fullness, which means to say that to say intent is only based on a neediness and an emptiness that seeks to be filled is not actually strictly true. There are the two possibilities. It's either an expression of emptiness or it's an expression of fullness. So if I asked you, why did you give the person a hundred pounds? You said, I don't know, I just, I wanted to give him a hundred pounds. It was a part of this, me celebrating this wonderful experience that I have of having all of this boon, you know? Um, I'm not doing it because I, I'm not even doing it because I saw he was needy and needed my help. You know, there's nothing to do with him. There's everything to do with me and my experience of this overflowing. So I think that's why he created. He created to share his nature, which is abundant, which is 
overflowing, which is the, the, the essence of all good things and all boon, all blessing, is his, is his nature. Now, is it, it's not inconceivable that that nature would seek to share itself. And, uh, and, uh, and to be known. You know, I have this joy. I seek the joy to be known. It's an overflowing. It's a fullness, not an emptiness. Not a neediness. And if we impose neediness on him, it is because we are looking through the, our habituated glasses of intent. We think intent can only be an emptiness that seeks to be filled. We don't recognize that intent can be a fullness that empties. You describe shirk as an attention to the self. Should we not try to understand oneself? Isn't that part what personal development is about? So let, let, me just, let me just indicate why I think shirk is, is attention to self. Mm. We know that technically it means shirk means to uh, ascribe partnership to Allah. And what does that mean? Well, um, I've been made to be in awe. I've been made to be worshipful and amazed with him. So if I grant significance to anything other than him, uh, I am negating that charge. I'm not, I'm making, I'm making a partner to him, making something other than him significant. And the worst that I can do of that is to make myself significant. That's when the, you know, it's like, like the mirror, the role of the mirror is to reflect the light. But if the mirror was self-conscious and it could look at itself, the moment it turns in on itself is no longer reflecting light. It just, there's just darkness. And so the fundamental kind of first expression of darkness is to make the self significant, to make the self interesting. That is an expression of shirk. Because la ilaha illallah, one of the many implications of that is there's no significant, there's nothing significant other than the significant. Because there's nothing worthy of worship other than the one who's worthy of worship. So, so to, for, to claim significance is to negate that statement. Now, there's a Castaneda passage somewhere, and I forget what, what book it's from where Castaneda claims that the, the, uh, the, the most difficult thing we contend with as human beings is self-importance. Self-importance is both the root of everything that is good in us and it's the root of everything that's rotten in us, simultaneously. Let's consider why it should be the root of everything rotten in us. It is the root of everything rotten in us when we seek to demonstrate our own significance. When we try and be the one who's seen, when we try and be the important one, because then we are breaking the rule. It's the mirror trying to see itself. There's another way in which self-importance is actually the most, one of our highest qualities. It is when it, when it is your, your, your dealing with the self is not in the spirit of trying to demonstrate and affirm the significance of the self. 
but it is an exploratory journey to, to find out how the self is actually constituted. Okay. So, so what actually happens behind, how does this work? Where this looking that's happening through my eyes, where does it come from? How is it constituted? How does it, that examination of how attention works is, is, is actually one of the highest things that we can do. So this statement um, that says you uh, as a uh, uh, shirk being uh, attention to the self, it is only insofar as that you try and grant significance to the self. But when the attention is literally an investigation into the reality behind your eyes, how does this thing actually work? Then it's, then it's one of the most extraordinary things you can do. It's actually one of the most useful things you can do. So that's not entirely true as it stands. It's true and false. It's an ambivalence. It's both the expression of our biggest fault, our shirk, and it's actually an expression of our, of our faith because we know uh, 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 know yourself and you'll know your love. You know, that's uh, now that that again has the bears the two the two uh, opposites. Um, know yourself outwardly, you know, uh, everything that you, so if I look at myself outwardly, I'm a small thing encapsulated by the overwhelming, I'm the vulnerable. If I don't get stuff given to me by other than me on an ongoing basis, I die. I'm the needy one. I'm the insignificant one. I'm the defenseless one. I'm, you know, and all of that is in contrast to his nature. He's the unassailable. He's the vast. He's the plentiful. He's the abundant. He's the, so in that sense, myself, when I'm seeing myself as my own significance, then, um, then, uh, uh, then uh, I, I can. When it was my own outward identity, then, um, then I, I, I've uh, affirming that is uh, when I investigate that. I, I basically investigate my my brokenness. But when I investigate how my attention actually operates, what goes on behind my eyes? Where does this looking come from? I get introduced to another reality, that reality which is closer to me than my jugular vein. In other words, he is not removed. He is not on the other side of the stars. He's not an alien thing. He is indescribably intimate. Isn't it true to say that you can get so intimate like two lovers, that there's no difference. The two beings have merged. That's, the, that's intimacy. That intimacy is already the truth. He didn't say to you, sometimes I'm closer to you than your jugular vein. He said, so, so in other words, examine this, where you're looking comes from, examine the, 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 the real, the deepest, most intimate, private part of yourself, and you'll find it's indivisible from him. It is him. 
for that. Most of us have uh, very much a do have beatitude. Now I'll do something and then I'll have something and then I'll be happy. Mm. And what you're saying here is be happy or grateful or appreciative. And then what you must do will flow out of that. Well, in fact, you, even a problem to describe it as must. It goes back to the description that we had before. You are, you've got this incredible boon. You've got more money than you know what to do with. You, and you, you walk past somebody spontaneously, the stranger in the street, you give them a hundred pounds. Ah, wonderful. Where's the must in that? Where's the sense of obligation in that? I mean, it makes nonsense of the idea. It's not obligation, it's joy. So the, 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 um, you know, it's, it's this thing of gratitude. I mean, if you, if you act unconditionally, if you give what is required of you without, without a spirit of negotiating, then the extraordinary thing that happens is that you, you receive more. And again, I mean, as we mentioned this previously, that Allah gives us our relationships with other people as um, almost like a practice ground for us to understand our engagement with him. So, you give to something to somebody, um, uh, and uh, the, the, that, per, that, the, that person reacts um, sort of in the spirit of, well, you know, you did owe me this. Um, uh, I really was entitled to what you just given me. Or you give something to somebody and the person's really grateful for what you've given. Now, surely the first experience is one where you didn't feel you quite gave. You almost felt like it was taken from you. Do you understand? I mean, it's like, 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 uh, oh, 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 I wasn't being, I, I wasn't being generous to you. I was owing you. Your experience is that I wasn't being generous to you. I was owing you. In other words, you, you, so, so, so the, the reciprocal side of me giving is the fact that you express generosity. Otherwise, there isn't a giving. Your lack of generosity disables my giving. Or, sorry, your lack of gratitude, I beg your pardon. Your lack of gratitude disables my giving. No. So, so if I'm, if I'm, so, so, uh, the gratitude of the self enables the generosity of the other and the ingratitude of the self disables the generosity of the other. So, if I am grateful for what I've been given and I'm genuinely grateful and gratitude means I recognize I've received in excess of my due. I was not owed this. This is This is from the overflowing of my Lord. There's no contract that I can account for what's just happened to me. The moment I recognize that, it is pleasurable for him and his minions, the stars, 
the cattle, the 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 the, the rain, the, to bless you with more. It is his pleasure to do so. Because just in the same way as that it's pleasurable for you to give to somebody who's genuinely grateful, it'll be it's pleasurable for the or him and all of these minions to shower you with blessing. On the other hand, just like it's deeply unpleasant for you to give something to somebody who then expresses a sense of entitlement to what you've given, so too it is deeply unpleasant for him. Why not? We do say in Quran, there are things that Allah detests, the things that Allah hates. So these are human kind of descriptions. So why isn't there such a thing that, that the Lord of it all and his minions detest the one who's ungrateful? Why should the Lord of it all and his minions shower boon and blessing on the one who's ungrateful, the one who thinks that he's been owed. It is the most outrageous proposition. So, so the most dangerous, the, literally the most dangerous quality that you can have is a sense of entitlement and all of its siblings, a sense of victimhood, a sense of having been done in, a sense of all of these things are deeply, deeply problematic states of being. The moment you assert that you've not been given your due, that you are owed, you close the doors of blessing. The moment you assert and deeply affirm that you've been given in excess of your due, you open the doors of blessing. <clears throat> and how do you know it's your heart that's moving you to an action and not your ego? You don't. This is a, uh, you don't. Um, this is, um, you know, perfection is on the other side of the grave. Here we are struggling, and we're struggling two contending forces. Um, we're struggling, the, the, one, the, the one is, uh, so, so in any moment that you're alive, you can either respond to the moment on the basis of what you want to get, or you can respond to the, to, uh, to the moment on the basis of what you should give, unconditionally. Those two possibilities face you in every moment. Now, as we mature, so, so you think of this rather, rather as completely binary. Actually, what, what happens as we mature is that there's a, there's a change in the proportion of the mix of our intent. So if I'm absolutely immature, like an infant, it's clear that the world is there to give me. I'm not, I don't have to do anything. So I'm owed unconditionally. And the more mature I become until I die, where I basically hand over everything unconditionally. So you have these two unconditional moments. And then as we move from the one to the other, there's in a sense a change in the proportion of the mix. In other words, our intent is a gray problem. It's not a black and white problem. That doesn't suggest that in gray, there isn't a proportion which is black and a proportion which is white. But it is a great problem, so it's never entirely clear. It is so complex that in one phase of your life, to act unconditionally doesn't necessarily mean that exactly the same thing is going to be true in another phase of your life. So, 
the easiest way to understand this is to look at the difference between old people and mature people, or the strong word. And adults who have the responsibility of adults. So, as a responsible adult, your job is to make sure that the world around you works. I mean, you've got to look after. You've got to look after the kids. You've got to keep the job down. You've got to make sure the bond gets paid. You know, you've got lots of duties. These are onerous things, and they're exhausting, you know? And it's very important that you don't upset the neighbors. In fact, that's the whole project of the adult. Let's keep the neighbors mollified and make sure you can pay the bond, you know, so the kids can get fed, you know? You know, and that's what the adults do. And it's right that they do that because if we, they can't, we can't let them all behave like anarchists. I mean, you have to feed the kids, et cetera. So don't be a good adult. But then there's a point in our lives where actually doing things to make the neighbors happy has within it, you see within it, there's obviously a duplicity in the motive. Can you see that? I'm doing that. I don't necessarily want to smile at you and be nice, but you know, we've got to, you know, live and net live. We've got to kind of get on with the neighbors. So I do, I'm willing to go through a number of machinations pretty inauthentically uh, to sort of appear like I'm sort of being tolerant and good natured and all of that. And then suddenly you get invited to go and visit your aged great grandparent, who's still quite sharp, but is now 95, going on 100, and is known to be quite a difficult cuss. And you, 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 you go to his house, and it is mid-morning. He's just had his breakfast. And very embarrassingly, you can see he's got, he's, he's got egg on his shirt, you see. And, and, um, and, and uh, you know, initially you try and ignore this, uh, but it, it does sort of, you know, every time you look at him, that egg just sort of leaps into your attention. And eventually you can't tolerate it anymore. You don't want to embarrass the old man, you know. You want to be... Because you also don't want him to embarrass himself. You want him to look respectable as adults should be respectable. You can't have egg on your shirt. So you say to him, um, uh, Grandad, Grandad, and his hearing's not very good anymore. I mean, his head is fine, but his hearing's not that good. So he sees you trying to say something. Ah, uh, uh, Grandad, you, you, you've got egg on your shirt. What? You, you, you've got egg on your shirt. So finally, the message sinks in. He looks down, and he says, indeed, there is egg on your shirt. And he looks in the eye, and he says, listen, man, I can't see the egg on my shirt. Don't make your problem my problem. <laughs> Have you experienced this with really old people? They don't give a brass farthing about the neighbors. Why should they? They're not trying to make anything work anymore. They're getting ready for the appointment with the boss. They're not yet to be good people anymore. They're not holding up a facade of right behavior. So the point I'm trying to make at one point in your life, being appropriate means being the good neighbor. At another point in your life, being appropriate means not giving a farthing about being a good neighbor. So this thing about what's the right thing to do is nuanced. It's never entirely clear. And it's precisely that, that it isn't entirely clear that 
means we need to keep ourselves on the carpet on, of humility. You see, because you, you can't ever be entirely sure. Have, have I really done the appropriate thing here? You won't know. So you try the best, it fails. With the benefit of hindsight, you realize, I shouldn't have done that. So for me to say at the front, yeah, yeah, you see Sajjad, yeah. Here's the rule, you see, here's, here's how it works. Next time you're in a situation, just apply this, you'll be, that's just naive. It, it really decomplexifies a really complex matter, which is supposed to be complex. So you can't, there isn't, a, there's, there's no formula. There really is no formula. You really have to bring the best of what you have to bear, struggle with a problem, act, and discover subsequently it was the wrong act. Because that's what clarifies your intent. No rule, no uh, nice, easy formula. And isn't that true for your own life? I mean, um, uh, uh, how many things have you done things, things that you did wrong were wrong at the time when you did them? I would suggest a very small proportion of things that you do that were wrong were wrong at the time. You, you did it because you thought it was the right thing to do. It's only in hindsight. So you have to work it out. You have to clarify. It's not entirely clear. Thank you very much, Sheikh Saab. And with that, I conclude session eight. Thank you very much. Listeners, you are listening to Millennium Discourses. We will be back tomorrow with another topic. We would like to thank Etzko Skatema. Till tomorrow, Allah Hafiz from us all.